Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Riddle House. Today we will be discussing the new point of view introduced in this chapter, what we assume as a first-time reader of this scene compared to now, and how this chapter serves as a primer to the rest of this book. So welcome to book four. We're so excited to be back. Yay, Goblet of Fire. Yeah, I love this book. And as I said at the end of the last season of the show, I've been really looking forward to starting this book. I love this chapter in particular. It's got such a really eerie and like mystical vibe to it. It's so mysterious. And I love the the way that it sets the scene for, as we're going to describe, like the whole, all the events of the book and how really it sets the tone as well. Yeah, it's so memorable. And like we'll talk as well. I added that about, you know, the first time reader because I remember how exciting and different it was to read this chapter compared to the other books. We were pretty young when this came out. And I remember feeling even at that young age that the tone had really dramatically shifted. Mm -hmm. The first three books definitely feel like children's books, like kids books. And this one doesn't. This one felt much older and Like, as Harry becomes a teenager, so too the tone of the book shifts and becomes really more geared toward young adults. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. Okay, so let's get into the synopsis before we get too far ahead of ourselves. Sure. So for the first time since the series opening, we begin not with Harry, but with an omniscient narrator describing a murder that occurred in the village of Little Hangleton in England. And we don't know this yet, but it it took place 50 years ago. So 50 years ago, all three members of the Riddle family who lived in this big mansion were found dead, Um, and the gardener, who's a war veteran named Frank Bryce, was the prime suspect. The real mystery there was that after examining the bodies, um, the coroner found that there was no cause of death. The only thing that he was able to find is that uh, they all had looks of terror on their faces, but since there was no reason to believe that any murder had actually been committed, the police were forced to release Frank and then they buried the bodies in the village cemetery. So now in the present day, the current owners are almost never at the Riddle House, but they still pay Frank Bryce to garden. And sort of everyone in the village still assumes that he did it, and it's become part of the like mysticism of this town. Um, and so one night, Frank wakes up and he sees a light on that looks like a fire burning on the second floor of the house, and he assumes that it's local boys who have been playing pranks on him for years, doing it again, and maybe escalating things, so he gets up to go see what's happening. Once he gets up the stairs, he pauses outside the room with the light coming from it, and eavesdrops on a conversation between a man named Wormtail and an unknown man with a high-pitched, cold, creepy voice. Frank thinks his hearing is getting worse because he hears words like Quidditch World Cup and Muggles. Then he realizes that they must be speaking some sort of code. The two men continue to argue about a plan to murder someone named Harry Potter, and they also argue about Wormtail's supposed loyalty to the cold-voiced man. Um, They also discuss having recently murdered another woman named Bertha Jorkins. The cold-voiced man implies that Wormtail is only with him out of cowardice and suggests that his truly, quote, faithful servant will be the linchpin of their plan. Frank becomes paralyzed by fear when an enormous snake slithers past him in the hall, for some reason ignoring Frank just standing there. The cold-voiced man starts making hissing noises, and Frank realizes that he is talking to the snake out in the hall, calling it towards him. 
The man says that the snake, which is named Nagini, has informed him that there is a, quote, old muggle, unquote, outside the door listening to every word they're saying. Frank is forced to go into the room and threatens to call the police, um, but then Lord Voldemort asks Wormtail to turn his chair around. Frank screams when he sees whatever is sitting in the chair, and Lord Voldemort kills him on the spot with a spell. The chapter ends with Harry Potter waking up with a start, as though he had dreamed the whole episode. So it's a long synopsis, but we felt like it was really important to kind of give you all of the details of this chapter, um, as, you know, some of our readers probably haven't read this in a while, and it is so important to get all those details to really understand, like, what's happening and why it's so interesting and so important to this book. Um, because, as we're going to say, like, you know, this this chapter is sort of a microcosm for, like, the whole plot of the Goblet of Fire book. Right. It leaves right. out a lot of important things, obviously. But, like, the whole general scheme of Voldemort's going to try to get Harry Potter somehow and then kill him somehow. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he kind of lays out how they're going to do that in yeah. sort of coded language. The oh, interesting thing, does. I think, is that, uh, you know, as, as we'll talk about, like, this scene takes place from the point of view of a muggle who doesn't know anything about wizards so he kind of assumes that all this stuff is just like thieves can't or something like that that criminals use to communicate about different ideas um but we as the reader know from our past reading of the other three books that this is all real and that he's just on the outs he doesn't know about this stuff yeah so let's just get in right into the idea of having an omniscient narrator and having this compared to the first chapter ever of the series yeah the boy who lived because I really, um, it really struck me, I, you know, even though I knew that this was kind of the next time it happened, um, just what you're saying about this is kind of the muggle's perspective slash the reader's perspective, um, although at this point it's not because we know more information than the muggle, but it's sort of taking us back to that place that we were in in The Boy Who Lived of being an observer of... Outside of the world. Yeah, yeah. outside and seeing some people... In, in the world knowing what's going on and some people not knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's in a muggle setting, you know, it's in like Privet Drive versus, you know, Little Hangleton. Little yeah. Hangleton. So all these muggle settings. And I, one thing that I'd forgotten too was how much there's sort of the preamble where they tell the story of the murder and the town and they have the whole scene in mm-hmm. the bar where um, they, you know, all the townsfolk the are discussing yeah, they're the murder. T- and they're stuff. talking about Frank, and then they're talking about how you know he was let go, and all this stuff. So it's very much putting us into like here's a small town um, in England with you know not very many people, and this is kind of the most exciting thing that's happened to their town was this murder, mm-hmm. and then this kind of creepy man um, that nobody really trusts, and then now of course something much worse is going to happen. But the way that it's written, I think is really interesting because it's getting us it's getting us into a mode that we are never in in the series really yeah i mean there's there's so much to unpack i think maybe one of the more interesting things to start with might be as you were saying when they're talking about it in the original um setting of 50 years ago when Mm -hmm. the original murders happened um i think something that's really fascinating is how adeptly rowling describes the way that um like rumor monitoring and gossip can destroy a person's reputation with like no Mm -hmm. evidence against them because obviously frank didn't murder the riddles he just happened to be their gardener and he happened to be kind of a jerk right um but all the townsfolk when once they hear that frank has been arrested they spend the rest of the night talking about how it must have been frank 
and how they never trusted him. Right. And how, you know, they always suspected that he would be up to some shady, you know, stuff. Um, so, it, uh, yeah, let's, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's really interesting to think of just in general, like, it's a great, like you said, characterization of, like, how gossip works, especially sort of small towns, small communities. Yeah. Um, but Frank is this other kind of character um, because he's living alone and he, all we know is that he's an injured and, like, traumatized war veteran. So doing the timeline of 50 years ago would be a World War II veteran. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really interesting and I wonder why, I guess, why do you think that Rowling made that choice to have him, have this specific character be a war veteran? Because I have some thoughts, but I think it's, I don't know, it's an interesting topic. I think it it makes sense for him to have been a veteran because Rowling needs him to be a character that's going to stand up for himself right. and to not be too afraid to confront people that are in the house, A, yeah. and then B, not to confront people that he thinks are criminals. Right. So, like, him having the whole warrior background thing, I think, helps for that. Like, at the end of the chapter when he's, like, stealing himself and he's like, all right, I have to go in and confront them. Like... Uh, maybe a person that didn't have combat experience would have more trouble with that. But she's kind of saying like, okay, like this is his characterization. Mm -hmm. He's a, he's a war veteran. So he's going to have the courage to actually go and do that. It also is a convenient um, way of, as you said, of othering him Mm -hmm. um, because the, the village folk are like, Oh, he like is a jerk. That's kind of a loose. um, It's not a very convincing argument of to why someone could be a murderer, but like people are always saying, like, oh, you know, like, you go into war, you, you kill people, and then you come back, like, how do you integrate into society? There is that disconnect where it becomes difficult to imagine as civilians killing people overseas and then coming back and being normal again. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't really understand that unless you are a veteran. So I think it's an easy way for her to sort of say about the townspeople, like, they don't trust him as much now, even though he was probably, you know, World War II, he was probably defending England against right. the the Axis powers. You know, a very just war in our opinion, but like still, you know, the townsfolk are, are kind of afraid of him a little bit. And it's a small town and maybe they didn't have a lot of people go to the war or, you know, maybe they didn't make it back. Maybe he's one of the only people that did. And yeah, I mean, we can just we can develop. There's a lot, there's a lot of room for speculation, but I think you're right that it's a convenient way for him to be different kind of scary you know just the idea of like okay this person has been trained to to kill people to kill people to commit violence he also i mean the way he's described is you know it's not super detailed but he has some sort of injury yeah he's got some kind of a limp and his hearing isn't very good so he might look a little scary he might be in pain and therefore not very friendly he right it, they said that he avoids crowds and stuff, clearly has some PTSD Absolutely, going yeah. on, which makes sense. And then is also just a, oh, he's, you know, he's weird. He has mental illness. He's mm-hmm. has the problem. And in that respect, it's a reflection of how society views people with PTSD and other mental mm-hmm. illnesses as well, right? You know, the, their othering of him is not just related to him being a soldier. It's also related to his condition in a sense. Right. You know, his avoiding of crowds or of gatherings is related to his traumatic history and that alienates him from the townspeople. You know, his, um, like, maybe overly reactive reaction to things like kids vandalizing property or setting off firecrackers, mm-hmm. for example, um, 
is related to that trauma. So when yeah. people other him or say like, yeah, he probably did kill them. It's related to that. So I think it is like a pretty clever commentary on our experience as a society with people with traumatic pasts. Yeah, and he's sort of like a Quasimodo type character in this. Of, From Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah, you know, the sort of like scary looking, actually benign person, but also like the idea of him sort of living in a castle by himself. Like this is kind of what's yeah. happening now to <laughs> Frank is that he's, you know, he's living like on the grounds, but right now supposedly no lives nobody house, lives there. So he basically and, lives there. You know, it's very vulnerable, and it's, it seems like, at least with the kids in the town, it seemed, uh, it's a, sort of a haunted house story. It's like there was this murder, mm-hmm. it was unexplained, they probably, you know, think that there are ghosts in there. It's interesting, because, I mean, we don't, obviously in this world, ghosts are real, but we don't know if there's ghosts in the Riddle House. Yeah, um, I mean, it seems like the perfect setting for a Shirley Jackson story or something. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, what what's interesting about this setting is that we as the reader, one, we hear the name Riddle and we immediately go, oh, Riddle, Riddle, yeah. Tom Riddle, Voldemort, his family, basically, like we can put two and two together. And then the second thing, like once we hear about, I remember reading this for the first time and feeling so clever because, and it wasn't clever, but <laughs> you know, like when you hear that, like the coroner was baffled because they're all dead and there's no like sign. Right of them being dead i was like oh it must be because voldemort killed them and he never leaves like any like he used magic so yeah, there's, there's no, no like more. outward sign you know it's not like he slashed them with a knife or anything and so is this well i wanted to go briefly into what actually happened with the murder sure, of the yeah. riddles but so this is just for my clarification is that they, they say that all three of them were dead so they say that basically tom is dead but he's not no, 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 no. Uh, there, there was some confusion about this. So the people that are dead are Tom Riddle's father, whose name is Tom Riddle Sr., who is probably in his 70s at this point, and his elderly, or rather, not, not in his 70s when he was killed. He was probably in his 30s. Um, and then his elderly parents, who were probably in their 60s or something. We don't know their oh, names. Oh, I but, see. But yeah, okay. Tom Riddle Sr. was like the, the squire. Um, he was like in his 30s or 40s at this point. Okay, I and think, he's Tom. Yeah. He's Voldemort's father. Okay, and he I was like back living with his parents at the time. I see. So he's killing his father and his grandparents. Is yes, what happens. Yes. Yeah, and we know that this happens. In what specific context does this does the murder happen? So, young Tom Riddle Jr. slash Voldemort is sixteen years old. He goes in search of his ancestry. Mm-hmm. He wants to find out who Tom Riddle Senior was. Um, and he knows that his mother was uh, a gaunt mm-hmm. um, from Little Hangleton. So he goes to visit his uh, his uncle Morfin and his grandfather Marvolo. He learns from um, from them, basically, that uh, his Tom Riddle Jr.'s mother um, basically, like, seduced Tom Riddle Sr., who was a muggle, um, and, like, using a love potion. And then they broke up once he realized that she had been enchanting him. And moved back in with his parents, and she died in childbirth. So Tom Riddle Jr. now is so infuriated about learning the the history of his own name as being like the name of a muggle who didn't want him, um, that he decides to go and kill his father and his grandparents and blame it on his uncle Morphin, who had already been convicted in the past of crimes against muggles and would be an easy target for the government. Short version of the story is that 
Tom Riddle uh, Jr. killed his father and his grandparents while he was still in school, and that's how he got um, Marvel Logan's ring also. Right. Okay, so we know that that's what happened, um, and then it becomes this mysterious, you know, from the Muggle perspective of there's no trace of why they died. They seemed in perfect health. This is all very creepy. Because he used the killing curse. We're going to learn about the killing curse later on in this book. This is actually a great foreshadowing of Mm -hmm. us learning about the killing curse. That's very true. So there's, yeah, we want to talk throughout this about how this chapter really, you know, represents the rest of the book. Foreshadows so much. Foreshadows so much. And that is one thing that I didn't even think about. Yeah, foreshadows learning about the killing curse and how that happens. Um, So now we get to the conversation between Wormtail and Voldemort and sort of comparing what that means to us now um, versus first-time readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, what we know, just from our current perspective, is Voldemort is back in some capacity. He has a body of one form or another, although is likely something scary, as we're assuming that he was in the chair. Yeah, we assume it's somewhat small because it, we don't see we don't him see, behind the chair. Yep. So maybe like a baby-sized person. Yep. Uh, but it's not like a person. It or even a looks, creature. We don't really know at this point. Probably looks horrifying. Yeah. Um, but we know that he can hold or wield a wand somehow because they describe that the thing was holding a wand. Yeah, they describe him casting a spell. So we know that he can use magic in this form. And we know that he has returned to Britain and is trying to murder Harry again. Um, which there's a little bit of arguing back and forth about with Wormtail. Wormtail kind of wondering, like, do we have to go through all this trouble to get Harry specifically? Mm -hmm. Um, I want to use this as an example, too, of, of we've talked about in the past, you know, the first chapter in every book is kind of an information dump to make sure that all the readers are up to mm -hmm. speed and what's happening. I really like this chapter a lot. It's not, it's not the best one in the series, but I think it, it's probably the second best one. Mm. Um, because this isn't like a getting you up to speed chapter. Right. This is kind of like signposting the rest of the book instead. It's not saying like, oh, remember when Wormtail escaped and he's with Voldemort yeah, now? Right. It's like... Fast forward. You kind of have to know that already. It's assuming you've read the first three books. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now we're going to signpost what's going to happen in this book. So Quidditch World Cup, Muggles, Faithful Servant at Hogwarts. Right. Like... All this stuff, and you're and you're the reader. You're going, oh, okay. So like, this is his plan somehow. All this stuff is going to yeah, be involved. Yeah, we assume. And they're having this conversation, Voldemort and Wormtail, for the benefit of the reader, of course. That's why this chapter is there. But um, it's also a conversation that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it could have happened. Maybe not in happened. the exact details, but I mean, Voldemort does kind of say a couple times, like, "We've been over this, Wormtail. Yeah. Stop asking me about it." And you're kind of like, okay. Right, so, like, this didn't need to happen. But, but also you could see Wormtail kind of anxiously asking questions a lot because mm-hmm. that's the kind of person he is. Right, right. So it it works out, and, um, yeah, and so you can, this is the first chapter, like you said, this is the first chapter where you are kind of thrown in, like, Rowling doesn't do a dump of, like, Harry found out that he was a wizard when he was 11, and then yeah. he lives with his, you know, he... She's going to do a little bit of that <clears throat> next chapter. Right. But not for the first chapter in the book, which I really, really like. Yeah. I love these, like, third-person omniscient chapter to kind of throw you in. Right. It's mm-hmm. almost like a prologue. Yeah. And then the action of the book starts. And the the transition at the end of this chapter also is perfect. I love that transition. Yeah. It's great. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's right away fast-paced right away engaging 
um, scary. You know, there's a lot of reasons why this chapter uh, turns us over into the, this is now dark. This is not mm-hmm. a kid's story anymore. This is very serious. But I think just jumping in saying, hey, remember when we were worried that Wormtail escaped? Because, like, what if he found Voldemort? It's like, oh, yep, he did. And it's really bad. And they're planning to kill Harry. It's like, all your fears from the end of the last book are realized in this moment. There's no, like, oh, it's all fine. And then we find out later that it's happening. Right. When we ended last book, um, Professor Trelawney's actual prediction was that Voldemort's servant that was in hiding would set out to find his master. The Dark Lord would return greater and more terrible than ever before and like that hasn't come true yet but we already see wormtails back with voldemort and they they do seem to be discussing i mean we know this now but even at, on a first read you can see that they're discussing kind of a return to some power plan plan and yeah. he's saying you know wormtail you'll be you'll somehow be able to harry help potter me. is involved and all of this um and we also see you know not surprising but we see voldemort we see voldemort interacting with someone sort of unseen by Harry, really, for the first time. You know, we sort of see him interacting with Quirrell, but normally, you know, Voldemort's either kind of not here or on his own or in a different form, but this is real-time Voldemort interacting with a real-time other person, Mm -hmm. and we're seeing that. This is the first time we've seen the real Voldemort since Philosopher's Stone. Right, that's true. And he, you know... It sucks. He's not great. Um, yeah, well, I mean, so let's talk about this, because uh, this is Voldemort with one of his servants, who is literally nursing him to health. Yeah. But how does he treat Wormtail in this scene? Yeah, he treats Wormtail... Wormtail... He treats Wormtail, you know, like like he's nothing. Like, he's literally a rat, which, you know... Which he is. He is. But we, like a coward. Like, yeah, treats like him like inferior. a coward. And... And we see him ruling through fear and intimidation. He's not counting on Wormtail to respect him or no. give him admiration or even care. I mean, he's he's basically just saying like, yeah, Wormtail, you're going to do this for me because if you don't, eventually I'm going to come back anyway and then I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. Yeah, and he's sort of like, yes, you're very important. Like, you're going to be able to help me in a very special way. But, you know, kind of like content, wink, wink, you know, in his own head, like... I'm going to steal your hand, so whatever. Yeah, and Wormtail thinks that, that he means that, like, he's going to kill him, basically. Yeah. And Voldemort's like, ha ha, Wormtail, you're not so important that I would kill you. Right. You're even more pathetic than that. Like, and and he's sort of, at, the, at one point, Wormtail's basically like, I'm a loyal servant. And he's like, uh, no. Like, yeah, you're not. <laughs> but you're useless to me. And it's, I think it is really, it is so interesting, too, because I, this happens, I think, a lot just in in stories. And then, you know, sometimes in life of, like, the little kind of, wimpy hanger on person is the one that you know will will help the big baddie yeah in the um in the beginnings but is never rewarded and is not actually helpful and and sometimes that character in the tropes turns to the good guy side at the end right. because they're able to convince him to better himself you know if you're mm-hmm. with someone only out of fear maybe you can be taught to overcome that fear and be a good person um, Wormtail gets, like, character assassinated throughout the series. Yes. So he really has no redemption arc at all, but... But it's interesting, especially compared to, um, you know, at the end of the last book and what we learn about his friendship circle is that mm-hmm. he, in some ways it is, I mean, we have no, I don't have any sympathy for Wormtail, but in some ways it is sad because you see, like, he had these friends that were good people that 
he could have, you know, had a better life following along with them. And they genuinely cared about him. And they did, it yeah. It wasn't like they, I mean, they saw him as a hanger-on because he was one. But they also were like, you know, you're our friend. We care about you. We would have died for you. Right. If you were in this situation. And now he's going to, like, you know, basically the one he chose who doesn't care about him at all. And this yeah. is his only option now because if he, you know, is seen by anyone else, he's going to be killed immediately. And this scene is so great because what we've characterized Wormtail as throughout the whole last book and continuing on through the rest of the series is that he's a character who's completely ruled by fear. Mm-hmm. Every decision that he makes throughout the series is because of fear. He always wants to be on the side of whoever he thinks has the best chance of winning. He doesn't want to be on the side of the losers. He's always afraid of being conquered. Um, and he's willing to side with a horrible person who treats him like crap. Yeah. Even if like he loses everything, he still is convinced that this is the right decision because the alternative is potentially losing. Right. He can't do that. And he can't, he can't do that. He's too afraid. He's too fearful. So this is a great scene, too, because we show what that gets him, which is to be treated horribly by a person that he's helping and, and showing his loyalty for, allegedly. So we've kind of already talked about this, but, you know, this chapter really is a primer for the whole book. You know, we hear about the beginnings of Voldemort and Wormtail's scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get all the details at, at the end in the chapter of Veritas Serum. But um, it really is like the beginning of it is here. So they mentioned Bertha Jorkins. She is like a big mystery figure throughout this book. Yeah, the Everyone's whole trying book, to figure yeah. out like what happened to her. Where mm-hmm. is she? They mentioned Harry Potter, obviously. You know, that's a major tie-in for their, their plot. But I think one of the biggest clues is that Wormtail says, like, we don't need Harry Potter to do this. Right. And Voldemort's like, yes, you're right. We don't need Harry Potter, but... We're going to use Harry Potter anyway. Yeah, we're going to kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, so that kind of clues the reader into, like, there's something else going on here. It's not about revenge. It's not about, oh, I need to come to power to kill Harry. It's like, Or that's... vice versa. Right. Um, yeah, but it's it's about something else. It's about, like, well, now, now that we've read the series, we know it's about trying to restore his body and right. come back to power. And it turns out that using Harry Potter for that was a huge mistake. Um, but, uh, it is a failing of Voldemort's that he always believes in these prophecies that he and Harry have their fates tied together. And he's such a ham, like this dramatic, he loves the drama. He loves the dramatic flair of using the boy who lived's blood to come back to life. Yeah. And I mean, that's, I mean, we, we will talk about movies another time maybe, but that is one thing I like about, um, the Voldemort's character in the movie and the acting because yeah because Rafe Fiennes kills it he kills it and because he adds the sort of like the drama queen aspect to Mm -hmm. it and like I think you know some of the choices the movies takes it a little the movie takes it too far but I think in terms of the acting and the character it's spot on because that's really what he's like he's not just this completely cold like deadpan villain i mean he is in some ways but he also has you know feelings he has things that he wants to make happen it's true yeah and 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 i love the drama queen aspect of voldemort because it makes him so interesting if he was like a really intelligent like wise villain he wouldn't make these mistakes and it wouldn't be nearly as interesting to read about right um but because he loves the dramatic stuff it's it's funny 
as a reader to watch these things unfold because it's like you were undone by your own kind of like not it's not really hubris but it's in a sense it's like hubris it's like you know you picked the one person who's like impossible to get on his own in the entire world like you yep. picked anybody and then you like if he picked random guy number one mm-hmm. you know then he's back in power in like two days right you know and instead he waits like nine months and then he is cursed for the rest of his life yeah you know it's like a really really bad decision <laughs> Um, not that he could have seen the second part of that coming, but still. No, but that it, it's also funny because, you know, it, Wormtail sort of has a good idea in this moment, even though Wormtail yeah. is, like, not calculated at all. He's like, I don't really get it. Like, why are we doing the drama queen version? Like, yeah. if you want me to just, you know, I already killed this person. I can kill another rando and then we can be done. Um, but, of course, we can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is a good idea from Wormtail. He's just not able to convince Voldemort that it's a good idea. No, and Vol- and probably the fact that he said that makes Voldemort even less likely to do it because Voldemort, you know, has no respect. has no respect, respect. for his opinion. Yeah, of course. I mean, for anyone, but especially Wormtail. So another way that this chapter sets up the rest of the book and the series in some ways is that, um, you know, Voldemort is now directly affecting the muggle world. And even though he's not back to power yet, um, we are starting to get that feeling of kind of the stories we've heard about when Voldemort was in power. And the idea that, you know, he was terrorizing the muggle world as well as the wizarding world. And so this is the first or second, I guess, murder since he's come back. Um, But we see the horror and the terror of like, oh, this is what it could be like. And again, kind of putting it, putting us into that um, feeling of this is not a kid's book anymore. In that sense, it's kind of foreshadowing the um, aftermath of the Quidditch World Cup. Mm-hmm. If you remember, because they like torture and the Death Eaters go out and torture a bunch of muggles. Right. Um, in the aftermath of the World Cup. And that kind of, again, as you were saying, like harkens back to in the first war, that was done all the time. That was like sport for them. Yeah. They, and it was a hallmark of the wizarding war. So, you know, theoretically going to be a hallmark of this one as well. Um, yeah, definitely part of that tonal shift to like, now people are doing war crimes. Right. And this is the first, as you pointed out earlier, this is the first on screen murder, quote unquote, that. Yeah. Cause we've seen people die, but like off screen before. Yeah. So we've never like witnessed uh, you know, a death, and certainly not from the perspective of the victim, which basically happens here. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, like, third-person omission-y thing, but it, it kind of is, like, Frank Bryce narrating-ish, like, while he gets murdered. Yeah, and so it's really, it's really scary. And just talking about, again, like, the first time we read it, I mean, I don't remember exactly, but I remember this being scary, and I mm-hmm. remember being, you know, excited about it, but also scared like wow who's you know it gives you the sense of like who's gonna die next even though this is a person we've just met and is killed immediately it's not like a person we care about but it is somebody that is vulnerable innocent and being murdered right i mean you know he's gonna die the second you read that like they found him right you know because he's a muggle he has no chance against two wizards and a snake but like as a, so as a reader, it's a terrifying scene because you know what's going to happen. Right. And you're just waiting for that. Um, on the other hand, I feel like with a scene like this, you're not really meant to be attached to the character yet. No. 
I think there's maybe there's maybe some readers who will disagree with me on this, but I don't think that we're meant to feel so upset about the death of Frank Bryce. It's supposed to be shocking in the sense that we're seeing a death yeah. on screen. But I don't think we're supposed to be like, oh no, like I you know, I'm so upset that Frank died. Yeah, we don't I mean we we've had like two pages to know him. I mean that's the thing too, is like he I mean, I like what we were talking about earlier is that he has all this mystery to him and He's is, well characterized. Yeah, not very well and is not very well liked, but we, you know, see that we at least we believe that he's innocent at this point and so um i mean you sympathize with him. you sympathize with him but right you're not not attached it's not like you don't have enough time to get really attached to him and he like he's kind of like this crotchety old man stereotype so it's not like you're mourning him after the fact i love though that the end of this chapter is harry potter waking up with a start yeah because it lets us know like a lot of things at the same time. One is that like this was a dream. Mm-hmm. But two is that Harry actually knows a lot of this information now. Yeah. This isn't just like a scene that took place somewhere in the country that the author is letting us know about. It's that it's Harry like, knows. This is what Harry saw and what Harry knows too. So now it's not just a case of dramatic irony between the readers and Harry. Yeah. Where our protagonist doesn't have information that we have. It's like everybody kind of has the same information now. Yeah, so connecting that to the idea of, like, we don't really care about Frank's murder, you know, we don't, and it's in some ways it's sort of, like, warm-up murder, you know, will be, this is going to happen in this book, be warned type thing. Yeah. And, but then, then the next sentence is saying Harry Potter woke up. Now we have that, you know, psychological association between, like, oh, was Harry... You know, that was a dream, but also, like, Harry experienced that, and did he feel like he was dying? I mean, we sort of have this weird tie between Frank and Harry, even though they're not actually connected. Yeah. That is association in our mind of, oh, no, like, Harry knows about this, and they were just talking about Harry's death. So we feel, like, the danger for Harry in a more direct way than I think we've felt in a while, um, you know, in the series, because this is... You know, Walmart's in his head at this point. Yeah. Um, some other really fascinating things about this, uh, the end of this scene. Um, one that we will probably not talk about until tomorrow, which is that his scar is hurting. Yeah. Um, I was going to Because there's a whole thing to unpack with that. But the second thing is that this is only one of, I think, two cases in the series. And the other one is also in this book where Harry has a vision about Voldemort that's not from a perspective that is somehow Voldemort's perspective. Right, that's the, true. All the other times that Harry has like a vision of Voldemort, it's always from the point of view of either... He's Voldemort. He's Voldemort, or he's like in the snake that Voldemort is also possessing at the time. Yeah. So it's, you know, and those make sense because as we like get farther into the series and we learn about this more, like Harry's mind Torcrux connection to Voldemort means that like when Voldemort is very vulnerable they kind of like have a bridged consciousness somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the case here. Here, Harry is taking on the perspective of this omniscient third person. Mm-hmm. He's having like a, a vision, almost like divination of like something that's happening concurrently, but across the country. Yeah. And that's so interesting too, because I wonder if that, if just within the theory of, you know, this shared consciousness, I wonder if because Voldemort is not... Um, you know, is is very weak at this point and is not in a real form that 
this kind of connection and this vision is in this sort of third person. Maybe it's not a fully realized way. connection, you think? Yeah, like he's not, it's sort of not strong enough for him to be in Voldemort's perspective, but he can be like nearby or sort of like hmm. get get a radio signal into this t- situation. I mean, I don't know. But when, yeah. you, when you said that is interesting. I wonder if it's related. And, uh, um, you know, yeah, we don't want to jump too much into the scar, but I do think it's cool that, you know, the, the last sentence of this chapter is like, Harry Potter wakes up 200 miles away. Turn the page. Next chapter title, The Scar. And so it's almost like telling you, again, without telling you, like, how is this happening? The scar, like this mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, even though we, Harry talks about the dream and what does it mean, um, it's something that we don't find out until much later, but it is right there. Yeah. This is kind of uh, maybe not the best like time to talk about this because it's like the end of our discussion, but I just love her chapter titles here. Mm. The Riddle House and The Scar. Like, as you were just saying, The Scar is a perfect title for that chapter because it's all about how he wakes up feeling. Mm-hmm. And this feeling is like the basis for that entire chapter. It's all like kind of taking place in his head and he's like processing mm-hmm. things. Um but this chapter, The Riddle House, because this is all about the setting. Yeah. This, like, the whole chapter is all about this, like, creepy house that's, like, overlooking this village. And it's the subject of all this, all these decades of history and mm-hmm. mystery and all this wonder and about, Speaking like, of Haunting of Hill House. The, yeah, right. Um, the break between the wizarding world and the magical world. And it's, and it's illustrative of, like, how in the real world this would be. You know, mm-hmm. there's not this, like really firm dividing line between Diagon Alley and the rest of London. Like Mm -hmm. there is bleed through like wizards are in the world. And so like there is this creepy house on the hill where like a wizard killed a bunch of people once and left no trace. And like, yeah. And it's a perfect setting because as we were saying, like there's history in the family, like Tom Riddle Jr. Killed his, his muggle family here. Um, there's history in the sense that the village is still like wondering what happened mm-hmm. even 50 years later. So that's like a great way of setting up this aura of mystery about like what's going on and things like that. And also um, for the tone and the setting of this book, because Rowling is trying to introduce us to the idea that like the stakes have been raised, mm-hmm. you know, previous books, like people didn't die in the first three Harry Potter books at least on the screen. Mm-hmm. Like, no one that we care about has died. Yeah. Um, that's changing. Like, right. she is killing off a character not only on screen, but that was the narrator. That we are embodying, basically. Yeah, we, were, we were, the like, the protagonist of that chapter is Frank Bryce, and he gets killed. So it's it's taking the, um, the stance and the viewpoint that, like, murder is up for grabs now mm-hmm. and like that should be expected it's it's introducing the reader to that idea and of course that does come around in a big way at the end of this book so we have to be um aware of that and the, and the last thing is um that's foreshadowed here is the mundanity mm. of of this death like when frank bryce dies he isn't even aware that an attack is coming because mm-hmm. he's so terrified and appalled by the vision of what he's seeing in the armchair um, and then it's it's described very mundanely. It's just like he was dead before he hit the ground. I don't even remember mm-hmm. the exact wording, but it's just like he never even saw, he never heard the words, he never saw like the wand raised or anything like that. Yeah. He, he was just dead. Um, that mundanity of death is a theme throughout the rest of the series and especially coming back at the end of this book 
when uh, a beloved character dies and it's not even it's it's an afterthought yeah that's so true it is a very um yeah i mean i obviously will talk so much about that but it's such a chilling kind of yeah foreshadowing of cedric's death which is you know most kind of, so affecting because of how it's written yeah and that's a, an amazing scene we'll get to that and probably just the last thing as we've already mentioned is that it foreshadows the killing curse as an idea right you know and we've we've theorized about this talks before. about green light which we know from harry's having visions of green light so that's kind of our connection so right. far right it makes sense um with what we kind of already know um but we you know as first-time readers i remember kind of thinking that there must be some sort of way of killing people magically, but we just hadn't heard about it yet. This book is where we hear about it. And yeah. it becomes so iconic um, in the series that, like, these words of Ada Kedavra are the killing curse words, you know. Um, and as we mentioned in our Fantastic Beasts 2 review, um, the fact <laughs> that they don't use the words in that movie at all is, I think, part of what alienates us as viewers from the because we it. learn how important it is yeah because if you're not using the words like the um the effect of it is so much lower like, you have yes, to mean you probably it, right? don't have to use the words to cast the spell yeah but just like as we were saying like the effect of it is almost like shooting a gun rather than something like powerfully magical you know yeah so those words are so important in that sense thematically um, but anyway, we're getting off topic. We're just really excited about <laughs> Goblet of Fire. I love this book. I'm so excited to talk about it um, on the show. And so I'm really, really happy that we can get back into it. Um, so thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the Riddle House. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. If you have thoughts or questions about anything we've discussed today, um, please let us know. We really do want to hear from you. And please email us at contact at theharrypodcast.com. You can find out more about the show and listen to any of our episodes at www.theharrypodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for next time when we burn our way through Chapter 2, The Scar. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox. Knox.